This is Alex. And this is James. And you're listening to the American Toffee Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the American Toffee Podcast. Well, this is going to be a tough one, folks. We suffered another extremely demoralizing defeat at the hands of Brighton and Hove Albion away at the Amex Stadium. There's a lot to break down. Obviously, there was the dramatic VAR call, Bernard going off with an injury. We're going to discuss a lot of these moments, but let me first introduce, of course, as always, my co-host, Alex. What up, everybody? Sounding very enthused on this Sunday morning, Alex. Yeah, I mean, whether we record immediately after or uh, about 24 hours after, it never gets any more fun when when you lose. And specifically, that game is just mind-boggling in terms of <laughs> how it ended. Or even really just the last 20 minutes of it just blow my mind in terms of really how it played out, what happened, and the fact that I was on cloud nine um, after a certain someone subbed on and scored a pretty nice goal for him specifically. So either way, as you said, we can kind of dive in the different key moments that we felt kind of epitomized the match as it goes forward. But nonetheless, I, I don't think many of us were expecting another loss after such an emphatic win against West Ham a week ago. It's kind of just a really ugly game of football overall. Um, You know, you have what uh, ends up being two own goals. Um, The free kick goal that was sort of botched by Pickford. Again, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's let's wind things back a little bit because the lineups come out and there's one change due to Yerry Mina being injured. Mason Holgate steps in for what many kind of think maybe one of his last chances to stake a claim to a blue shirt. I mean, we are precariously thin in that center back position. And so I think he'll probably have a couple more opportunities throughout the season. But what did you make of, I know you had a specific note about the positioning of Holgate when he came into the team. I thought he played completely fine. I mean, I have no complaints in terms of how he performed. I think that, uh, I I believe the forward's name was Connolly, but that 19 year old forward on Brighton gave both center backs really kind of an issue when he would drop a little deep to receive the ball with back to goal. So props to him for having the strength and that sort of thing to hold the ball up and and Holgate battled with him. I think it was a good, healthy competition there. Otherwise, I really don't think that, you know, we had any issues from him, unfortunately, as a center back, unless you're putting on, you know, a man of the match display like Yuri Mina has many times this season. You're not necessarily noticed if you're doing your job because you're not making mistakes. However, I think that specifically when the lineup came out, when we see him playing right in like the first five minutes, my first thought of the match was the fact that we played Holgate at left center back. We know that Michael Keane and Mason Holgate are both right-footed and shoot, even Yuri Mina is right-footed. And so at that point, right, you just have to figure out who's going to play at left center back. We saw last season, Kurt Zuma played left center back while Michael Keane played right. And so when Holgate was plugged in at left, then I think that kind of told me that there's, there's a a huge inflexibility by Michael Keane to be able to play on the left-hand side. Is that a monumental issue or anything like that? Not really. It was just kind of a thought that I had. You know, you're you're you have all right-footed players that have paired with Michael Keane since I'm pretty sure since he came to Everton and uh every single time he's always been on the right-hand side. It's more interesting because you think about the fact that Mason hasn't really had any any meaningful minutes in the Premier League yet. And so sometimes you'll see managers kind of play that player in their preferred area so that they feel the most comfortable while the other that might be more in form 
will just go to the less optimal position, which would be left center back at this point. However, it's kind of surprising that that it did not happen that way. Yeah, I think that that's probably just a function of Silva trying to keep the team as uniform as possible with Yeri Mina having been playing that left center back. I think it makes sense to to bring Mason Holgate in just to keep continuity within the squad. But I do agree with the idea that you may want to play the player coming in with very little uh, experience or momentum or whatever you want to call it this season to put them in perhaps their more comfortable position. But I think, you know, they they played for Holgate at least played fairly well. I actually thought Michael Keane was fairly poor. Um, but as the game gets going, I mean, it's a pretty ugly first 10 minutes. We did manage to create one really nice opportunity with forcing a turnover right around midfield. And then we get the ball to Alex Iwobi, who who sends Theo Walcott in on the right-hand flank. And at that point, I was hoping that that would be kind of the trend for the game because we talked about it in our pre-match that our offense functions best when we're able to quickly transition and have teams on the back foot. That was one of the few and far between moments of counterattacking play that we were able to conjure up in this match. And just based on that quick little start, I was I was really hopeful that we'd see that continue, but unfortunately we did not. Yes, you highlighted it well in the preview in talking about the fact that Brighton were probably going to look to maintain possession because you and I were both very surprised when we saw that Brighton held possession, the majority possession in, in I think all of their matches, at least on average home and away this season. And they did that against Everton specifically, who have also been maintaining quite a bit of possession throughout the season. And I think that made it quite difficult for us. You could definitely see that it was actually more clear than ever, actually, before even any of the crazy drama unfolded throughout the match, that these players away from home are just a shell of the player that is playing at Goodison Park. And it's confusing. The commentators harped on it. You know, the the NBC, Rebecca Lowe and them, at halftime, at full time, talked about it quite extensively. And it's unfortunate to see because, I mean, even last season, season before last, you know, we put one win and we're hoping for a next. And for some reason, it is the hardest thing in the entire world for Everton to put two wins back to back. And it's just frustrating. Extremely frustrating. And to kind of compound our woes here, after about 15 or so minutes, we have our left winger, Bernard, who goes down under no contact. Looks like he may have. Uh, done something to his groin muscle. He left the stadium on crutches, which is never, ever a good sign. So that makes things more complicated for us moving forward because he, and it changed the game itself, having to make a substitution that early and bring on Gilfie Sigurdsson. But hopefully the Brazilian is nothing too serious and he can be back on the pitch in a couple weeks. But it didn't look good going down under no contact. Yeah, you know, this season... I was hoping for Bernard to step up, and he's been doing so, and he's been playing, which is fantastic. Now the issue turns into the fact that you know Sigurdsson came on, and so that put that pushed Iwobi onto the left hand side, and Sigurdsson in the middle at attacking midfield, which is pretty standard in my opinion. But Iwobi still isn't that strong on the left hand side. He he prefers to play at the ten. I think with the performance we saw last week when he played at the ten. That kind of epitomizes really what he's all about, you know, being able to get possession off pretty quickly. And he's always looking for that forward pass to break the defensive line. So unfortunately, with Bernard out, we really don't have a clear left-hand option. The only way that's going to work out, in my opinion, is if 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 we push Richarlison to the left-hand side. Um, but then I'm not sure, you know, that kind of leaves the Iwobi-Sigurdsson debate. Nonetheless, it, it's, not a good, it's not good news at all. 
And unfortunately, that's kind of just the hand we were dealt. The interesting part was a lot of people were were screaming that they they think we should have brought on maybe Moyes Keen as opposed to Gilfie Sigurdsson in that situation. Yeah, that's a tough one tactically to figure out. I mean, it's kind of the obvious situation where Owobi's second preferred position is quote unquote left wing. It's that early in the game you probably don't want to I don't know. I don't know why Moise Keen isn't able to get into the team right now. It's a little bit frustrating. But Richarlison, I actually thought was really well suited to the striker role this match. I thought his pressure on the back line of Brighton was really effective at times, even though they still were able to control possession. And he made some really, really nice runs, and he actually won the most aerials out of anyone in our team. Um, that could just be a function of the fact we're playing quite a few long balls. But Richarlison, a striker, does I, that's not the thing I take issue with with this lineup. And unfortunately, just by function of us not having a great deal of depth at winger, um, it did force Sigurdsson on. And, and, you know, Sigurdsson has his critics. He scored last weekend, so it's hard to to point the finger at him specifically. But the, that wasn't really – that substitution wasn't really what I took issue with in this game. There were numerous other things that took precedent over that, the first of which being the free kick goal that's conceded um, – Firstly, Andre Gomez with what's a completely unnecessary reach in and foul on the edge of the 18 in a really, really dangerous position. He's been known to give away a stupid foul every now and then, and really the team as a whole has been known to do that. So the foul to begin with to give Gross the the free kick in that position, and then Jordan Pickford, this is probably the most glaring error he's had yet this season, in my opinion. That is a save. That has to be a save 10 times out of 10. I get that it's hit with a lot of pace and power, but it's effectively right at him and it almost goes directly through his hands. That's just not good enough. Um, you know, I'm not going to extrapolate that to say that Jordan Pickford isn't good enough for this team because I think he's a really good keeper, but we know that in his tenure at Everton, he's been prone to lapses and that was definitely one of them. And it put us on the back foot very early on. Yes. And then immediately the commentators start bringing out the fantastic old statistic apparently which still stands now in which we have never come from behind to win a match with Marco Silva as the manager I think we're 0 for 20 now essentially I mean I'm not counting for draws but uh, I promise that's the minority of those 20 matches nonetheless Pickford I mean yes again as you said he's prone to those errors but at the same time he's a really good keeper probably I mean probably the best keeper that we could get if he were to leave for example, I do not believe that we could get a keeper better than Jordan Pickford. Therefore, you know, not to say I'm giving him a pass. I'm just saying that it happens. It's unfortunate. But on the flip side, about seven minutes later, Everton march up the pitch. We get a corner. And literally before the commentator could finish saying that we have not scored from a set piece, we score from a set piece. We thought it was Richarlison, although it ended up being given as an own goal. But we were right back in it. It was 1-1. It was only... 21 minutes in, 20 minutes in, and you feel as though we have that momentum back and the players looked a little bit more energized. Yeah, a bit of shocking defending from Brighton on that set piece, to be honest. I mean, yeah, it, go, it goes down as an own goal, but really nobody picks up Richarlison at all on the near post, and it was essentially a free header. Um, you know, the, the announcers were saying, we thought that Everton were bad at defending set pieces, which we are. Let's not pretend like we're not bad at it. But that was like appallingly bad where... The first, basically the first man that the ball reaches is wide open and he's he's in a really good position to score and it ends up deflecting off of uh, the defender's shoulder and going in. But I wasn't complaining at the time. I mean, it's one all, like you said, plenty of game left and we're right back in it. It's effectively all to play for at that point, hoping that 
there's a glimmer of hope that we may finally get that first come from behind win under Marco Silva. And then uh, it, I mean, the game continued in kind of the same trends where Brighton had some, not a ton of great chances, but they were possessing the ball really well. And we were pressing them, getting some turnovers, but not really able to do much with it. And then Brighton right before halftime had a really nice chance to score. And I wanted to point out this one specific moment because it's of course relevant as the game went into the second half, but Luca Dean had a really, really important goal line block for what was essentially a certain goal for Brighton just before the half to prevent us from going 2-1 down, which I think at that point, things could have really, really gone off the rails had that happened. So although he did end up, of course, scoring the own goal later, it's almost like, you know, those individual moments, they kind of offset each other because if he hadn't been there, that's 2-1 in the games. At that point, I think if we go down twice, you know, we're effectively finished for the second half. Yeah, absolutely agree. Luca Dean is, honestly, I cannot remember any one match we have talked about since he's joined the club in which we highlighted Luca Dean as anything but at least solid or good. You know, he, he's not one that really makes a whole lot of mistakes. He's always got that consistent quality on the left-hand side, and he's a good defender. Um, maybe paired with with Yeri Mina, between those two, they're definitely two of the, uh, the best one-on-one defenders we have at the club, that's for sure. So. It was an important, you know, block. And, and that's just, that's the type of thing that you need players stepping up and doing. Unfortunately, Pickford couldn't earlier, but that's okay because you go into the first, you go into halftime, down into the locker room, and you're ready to regroup. And, you know, last season specifically, we were a second half team. We'd always start slow no matter what. And then we'd come up, come out after halftime, and it was a completely different Everton. To an extent, we somewhat did the same thing in this match. We, I thought we were really nervous, specifically in the center of the pitch. Tom Davies and Gomez, to put it very bluntly, were not good in the first half. Um, You could see Gomez's pass map in which he was essentially just passing sideways or backwards. And the sideways passing was not anything, uh, anything, you know, useful whatsoever. Tom Davies was not able to connect play very effectively at all. And he looked uh, very nervous as well. But we come out in the second half and I really thought that you know, we looked determined, we looked hungry, and I felt that we started to possess the ball a little bit more. Yeah, certainly a change, changed things up at halftime, came out with a little bit of renewed confidence. I still felt that Davis and Gomez weren't quite good enough. I thought, you know, what Tom Davis did so well last weekend against West Ham was really quickly getting rid of the ball and moving it forward. And at times in this match, it felt like he held on to it a little bit too long, tried to do a little bit too much. We all know when Andre Gomez comes under uh, pressure, he's really good at wiggling out of those those tight spaces and finding a pass. There were a couple of times when Tom Davis was caught in similar situations and got about 85% of the way free, but was, wasn't really quite able to complete the move and gave away possession in our third a couple of times, which were notable in that they you know put Brighton on the front foot and gave them a really good attacking position. But yeah, I mean, the midfield as a whole, definitely not good enough throughout the entire match. And Credit to Brighton, their setup. I mean, they they really kind of neutralized our attack going forward. We weren't able to create much with 10 defenders in front of us. Trying to break that down is one of the great struggles, I think, for any team when a team is has a really nice shape and is determined to maintain that shape. And we just seem completely inept at bringing that uh, or breaking sides like that down when they're not sort of disorganized via a quick turnover or a long ball that takes a weird deflection or something like that. Um, But then right around the 70th minute, we bring on two substitutes. 
Um, or sorry, yeah, yeah, right around the same time. And, and what was weird about it was that Luis Boamorte was talking to Calvert-Lewin for probably six plus minutes. He didn't come on until 71. He was probably up getting warmed up at like 62, 63. And then there was a really long delay of like explaining tactics to him. I just thought that was a little bit bizarre because theoretically you would have some kind of tactical plan in place, maybe not not implementing it immediately before the player comes on. But proving me wrong, he comes on and immediately scores off of a really, really nice run and through ball from Mason Holgate. Yes. You know, and that that moment I was on, I was completely on cloud nine, I think like the most, the rest of the fan base. But what I really liked about that play was obviously Mason Holgate with a really nice run in and the through ball. It was beautiful. I really appreciated that. But it was the fact that A, Dom actually got the opportunity to run onto something for once. Dominic Calvert-Lewin is actually one of the paciest players on the team, period. And, and when you look at his strengths and weaknesses, you know, obviously he's gotten uh, so much better at hold-up play and he's, he's strong, he's tall, he's physical, and he, and he can contribute quite a bit in the buildup. But he was able to run onto the ball as a, as a right footer. And what'd he do? First touch, slotted it past the keeper. It was, a, it, was a, it was a really, really good finish with his left foot. I really appreciated it. And, and it was important for us. And at that point, you really felt that, that the team could kind of, and without being too cheesy, I was hoping that the squad could really just kind of inject that into their veins and help see out the rest, you know, the last 20 minutes of the match in which we were, you know, we were working really hard in the second half. I thought that they really bumped up the energy levels. And, and, and as a side note, I think that, you know, Dominic Calvert-Lewin coming on, scoring with one of, if not his first touch, shows that maybe Silva was vindicated in 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 choosing to sub on Gilfie Sigurdsson earlier when the whole fan base was screaming for Moise Keane, even as opposed to Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Yeah, and it's now five and five for Calvert-Lewin. So he is on a bit of a scoring tear, which is probably in large part, you know, or is a large part of why Moise Keane hasn't seen much game time just because when it comes to striker scoring, you are kind of forced the manager's hand into playing him further. And yeah, I agree with you. As soon as we scored that second one, I was like, this is the moment, finally, 23 games in, 24 games in, that we've gone down and have yet to pick up a win. This is the one. And then just a few short minutes later, the ceiling came crumbling down on our heads as this is going to get, this might get a little spicy because Alex and I uh, disagree on this, but the Michael Keane foul and subsequent VAR review, which awarded the penalty. For me, I understand why it was called a penalty. And I think it is a penalty if the referee sees that in live action. What's so difficult is that it's very, very minimal contact. No one's disputing that. But the fact of the matter is, is it's a ball over the top. And just as the player is going up to make a, a move to try to you know, trap the ball, do whatever, get a touch on it. That's a, the exact moment where Michael Keane makes contact with him and impedes his ability to make a play on the ball. And if those are the only two players in front of the net, and if he's able to fully make you know the motion he's trying to make and if he wins the ball then I think it's a chance on goal which is why you then see the penalty awarded it's a really soft and the flop afterwards is frankly just embarrassing but also without the flop I don't think you get the VAR review and the penalty awarded so it's really unfortunate and it's and the other thing is you know it sets a new precedent because there's yet to be a on-field referee's decision reversed via VAR so I I understand why people are so upset and frustrated with it but for me, the purpose of VAR is to end up with the right call at the end of the review. And in this case, I think it served its purpose, as unfortunate as it is. So here's what we agree on. 
if the referee sees that live action and calls a penalty, the fan base, including myself, would be extremely annoyed because A, it's a penalty just in general, that sucks, but B, because it was very soft. However, you could still call it a foul. It doesn't matter if he's looking down at his foot or at him in general, right? Michael Keem was looking overhead at the ball incoming. It doesn't matter. Technically, it's a very soft but foul nonetheless. Where we disagree is the interpretation and the use of VAR. So here is here is essentially what VAR is supposed to do. VAR is not actually necessarily to get the correct decision. It is, but with a huge caveat that it is video assistant referee, meaning that you are to supplement what the referee on the field is doing, the calls they're making, but it has to be a clear and obvious error in his call in order to reverse it. And we have seen many, many penalty shouts this season that have been much stronger contact, much more blatant than Michael Keane, you know, stepping on Connolly's boot while not even looking at him. And those were not reversed. They were not given as penalties. And that is because you are not giving someone in the box, wherever they're sitting to watch VAR, the ability to overturn the call if it's not clear and obvious error. In my opinion, in most opinions I see online, that's that's it, right? It's 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 such a soft call. The referee not being able to see that with the naked eye assumes, you know, it, it tells you that that should not be a penalty. And and the fact that Lee Mason is able to sit up there on his butt and just reverse the call and then the main referee on the pitch did not go look at it. I have issues with that. I don't I don't think that that decision should be reversed. Now, in our discussions yesterday, you mentioned, okay, well, if 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 roles were reversed and Everton were giving that penalty, then we would be excited about it. We would be saying, oh yeah, that's a penalty. That's true. But I would say that we would be biased by rejoicing that call, which is okay, because any fan base would be. I just don't agree that VAR should be reversing that decision. And I think that it is, in quotes, Everton that to be the first team to have a, a decision on field, on the pitch, reversed, especially for something that soft. 100%. I mean, it's Everton that to a T. Like, we were the first team to have, I mean, when Umar Nias was suspended for supposed simulation, it is very Everton to have some kind of weird new rule be trialed on us as a club and further you know, contribute to our woes as a fan base. For me, and I don't know what the referee sees on this play. That's I think that's a big factor here because I think if the referee completely missed the contact, if he's at a bad angle, if he, you know, if there's a player between them and he misses the contact and he assumes that it's just pure simulation on the part of Connolly, then upon review, you see that there is in fact contact. Then for me, that's a clear and obvious error. And I think that that comes back to, you know, I'm trying to look up online definitions of a clear and obvious error. And, and though it seems like it should be cut and dry, it still leaves a lot up to interpretation. And again, my my issues are, or my agreement is with purely on, they decided to go to VAR, they reviewed it. What they saw on VAR constituted a penalty and they called it. That's all that I agree upon. The, the end result was the correct call. The decision to go to VAR, the consistency with implementation, implementation of VAR and furthermore, you know, the refereeing of the match as a whole, I all have, I take issue with all of those things because I thought it was extremely one-sided for huge swaths of the game. But at the same time, I just don't think that we can take this and it's easy to take this one moment and say it led to our ultimate demise. 
but the complete capitulation after the fact, after we, you know, the games, there's still plenty of time left for us to go and win that game. It's only tied. And yet it sucked all the wind out of our sails and we completely fell apart after. That's fair. Um, and just to round out the VAR section, you know, and I'm just spitballing here, you know, clear and obvious. That means there has to be kind of two pieces to a review, right? In my mind, again, I, I could be right or wrong. Maybe in this instance, I could argue that when it goes to review, it was an obvious foul. The referee missed an obviously missed a foul because he did not call it, yet it was a foul, soft or not. But maybe in this case, the argument comes with, was, was it clearly a foul? Does that make sense? Was it clear? Do I think it was clear to the naked eye during the match? Probably not. Um, again, am I right? Am I wrong? I, I don't know. But I think that those two pieces, as Im- ambiguous and vague as they are, um, kind of make up maybe the the confusion and then, as you said, lack of consistency. But again, there's there's no excuse, as you said, for the way that we capitulated. Now, do I think that there's a greater chance that we see out the win without it? 100%. But either way, we didn't. And, and I thought that the play got extra sloppy after that moment. And I understand why. And Marco Silva even, you know, ends up saying, oh, the players got extremely nervous after that call. But the thing is, if you're getting that nervous about that call, then that means that you do not believe in yourself. To, you don't believe in the ability of your team, your teammates, to move up the pitch in the next 15 to 20 minutes and score to make it 3-2 to Everton. Furthermore, the, the most ironic thing is the VAR check on that penalty on Connolly is what ended up dragging out extra time to the point in which we then conceded a Luca Dean own goal to lose it. Yeah, <clears throat> it's just a comedy of errors, really. Like there's there's so many things that you can point at to say that it went wrong, but I just think it has to come back to really it comes back and falls squarely on Marco Silva's shoulders. At this point, we are now I I don't know if this was the 25th game. I think it was, but it's either the 24th or the 25th, and we have 20 losses and four draws in games that we've gone behind. And that is flat out just abysmally unacceptable by any standard to show a complete inability to come back once your your back is to the wall, any fight. And it's so, you know, we get lambasted or people get lambasted for saying like it's a squad attitude problem. It's a mentality thing. But there's literally no other explanation for this record other than we lack the belief in ourselves when we go down to to maintain our level of play and our confidence and to continue that throughout a full 90 minutes. It just seems like the second we face adversity, the wheels come off and we look frozen and very afraid to do the things that we were doing fairly easily moments before. And it's not just this game, it's every other game that I've watched under this team, under the reign of Silva. And it's so, so frustrating because it's so predictable at this point that when we went up, when we went to one up, I was so optimistic. And yet in the back of my mind, I had this lingering feeling like this can't be happening, right? Like this isn't the Everton that I've come to know over the last couple of years. And sure enough, the wheels fell off. The own goal for Dean is really, really unfortunate. And like I said, he did save us a goal earlier. So I think that's kind of like a net zero, but when you are in that position um, on the six yard line and a ball comes in with that type of pace, you just, you kind of got to take a swing at it and hope for the best because you can't let it go beyond you because who knows what's waiting on the other side. So really poor timing and, and a bad, bad result for Everton without question, given the fact that 
we fought back, we took the lead, and then only to capitulate and, and throw it all away. And we're now, you know, firmly in the relegation fight for the time being. Although I do think that those shouts that we're going to be in a dogfight to stay up, I think those are still very, very premature. Um, whether or not Marco Silva has a long-term future at the club now, I'm still of the in the camp that we need to keep him a little bit longer just because of the instability that will arise if he's gone. I know many are fed up and sick of him, which I get and totally understand. Yes, and and here's the thing. Here's the nail in the coffin. Tuesday, we have Watford in the Carabao Cup. Watford have not even won one Premier League match thus far. But in recent seasons, I mean, they've been a pretty good team. And we've had issues playing against Watford. They've got dangerous players. Shout out Jerry D, right? They've got Ducore. And so I think that if we go out and we lose this match on Tuesday to Watford, then I think his days are extremely numbered. If we do not, if we win it and we move on, I think that that gives him, that buys him a little bit more time. But here's what I will say. If slash when they let Marco Silva go, then if it's in the middle of the season, I, I, I legitimately just prefer that Unsworth comes up from the U23s and just holds the team through the season. Because really, by the time Sam Allardyce came prior to Marco Silva's appointment, Unsworth had already gotten us out of the relegation zone. We were essentially safe by the time we paid Big Sam millions and millions of millions of pounds for seven months worth of work or however long it was. And so with that, I, I personally think that should be the strategy, but I guess that's a that's a discussion for another day. Yeah, I think we can definitely get into it, but I, I don't necessarily agree with that take. Um, I think Unsworth... Well, first of all, I just do not think that there's any scenario where Everton are relegated. And knock on wood, because come May, that could be you know famous last words. But um, your point to uh, Watford on Tuesday, which we will be recording uh, afterwards, after the match, we'll give you guys a post-match and our thoughts. But it's enormous. The cups in general are going to be Silva's lifeline at this point, because if he can keep us in those, then at least we have something to fight for this season, something to root for, get behind as as a fan base. But it's also like you said, Watford haven't won a Premier League match yet this season. And guess what Everton are really good at doing? Giving teams that are in desperate need of a win, a win at the least opportune moment for us. And so I think this sets up very nicely for yet another Everton that moment on Tuesday. I still think that we should be beating them. But it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if we somehow lost 2-0 to Watford. Um, Just based on what I know about this club and what I feel in my heart. I can just see it on the horizon and just, and that would be, I think that would be, yeah, I think that'd be it for Silva at that point. If he can't beat us, if we lose to his former club who are in dire straits at the moment, I just can't see any way that the fan base could continue to have confidence in him. Um, But then the long-term picture becomes very, very uh, blurry and unclear and uncertainty. It can be the destroyer of, of any type of squad that we've tried to build so far. We know I'm going on a rant right now, so I'll just cut it short in that. The Tuesday match is now of unbelievable importance to Marco Silva and his future at the club. So with that said, tune in midweek as we record, hopefully a very happy and elated post-match of Everton versus Watford in the Carabao Cup. Otherwise, have a fantastic week. And either way, as always, up the toffee. Thanks for tuning in to the American Toffee Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at USA Toffee Pod to stay up to date on the latest episode releases and Everton news. 
and we'll see you guys next time.